Welcome to an episode of the podcast Art Insiders New York. My name is Anders Holst. The theme of the podcast is New York with a focus on behind the scenes conversations with fascinating people who are making an impact in the world of art, design and architecture. In this interview, architect Richard Southwick, partner at Bayer Binder Bell, tells the fascinating story behind the preservation, restoration and reinvention of Eero Saarinen's masterpiece, the TWA Terminal at JF Kennedy International Airport. Richard made his first field trip to the building in 1978, perhaps a premonition of what would become a 25-year relationship with this iconic and popular building up until its inauguration as the TWA Hotel in 2019. We talk about the beautiful design of the building, the genius of Erosarnan, and some of Richard's favorite architects, as well as his top three projects over his successful career. So here we are at um, the headquarters of Bayer Blinder Bell in downtown Manhattan. And uh, today's conversation is about TWA Hotel or TWA Flight Center. And uh, it's hard to imagine a better person to talk to about this than Richard Southwick, who is partner at Bayer Blinder Bell and has a long-standing relationship with this building. As a matter of fact, uh, I think you told me that uh, it was one of the two buildings that you visited when you came to Manhattan the first time. That's correct. I've had a passion for uh, TWA and Saarinen for many, many decades. When I moved to New York City in 1978 to go to grad school at Columbia University, uh, within a few weeks, one of my first field trips was out to Kennedy Airport to see what was a much newer TWA flight center. Um, it's an incredible building. I, I saw it for the first time actually at this event organized by Open House New York, that where we met. Mm-hmm. I saw it from the train, I caught a glimpse of it. Then I came through the, the famous tunnel and I heard Frank Sinatra and I came to, into the building and it took my breath away. What is it? How would you describe this building? I think what appealed to you from that view and what appealed to me many years ago and to millions of other people in that long period of time in between is this very creative expressionist uh, architecture that Saarinen was so good at. Yeah. Not the first, not the last. Uh, Gary is doing work like that now. Uh, Mendelssohn, years before that. Le Corbusier's uh, Rochamp is a great example. Yeah. But uh, as a modernist, um, Saarinen was able to really kind of break the mold and take a very creative approach to every project he worked on. Yeah. Uh, there's probably nothing more brilliant, uh, more simple, and um, more dramatic than his St. Louis Arch. I see. Um, it, it looks like a bird to some extent, now that I'm thinking about and reflecting upon it, like a bird with huge wings on the side. Is this something that relates to your interpretation? Or? Oh, absolutely. I think it's a, a manifestation of the excitement of flight yeah. about ready to take off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what ism is this building? I mean, how, how would you categorize it? Well, it's certainly a mid-century modern icon. Yeah. Uh, it's an expressionist, uh, a great expressionist example of architecture. It is, in some ways, I would describe it oftentimes as uh, Saarinen's perfect work. Mm. Uh, Saarinen really had his bread and butter doing uh, corporate headquarters. Yeah. IBM, John Deere, General Motors Technical Center is one of his first and very largest projects. Um, and those are all great brands for these corporations. 
Uh, he also, at the same time, did this wonderful smaller-scale expressionist uh, work. One of my favorite buildings uh, of all time is the MIT Chapel. Yeah. And uh, very petite, yeah. uh, very moving. And what he's been able to accomplish at TWA is the marriage of a corporate identity and an expressionist piece of sculpture. Yeah. And uh, uh, it was used by TWA as their symbol for many, many years. Yeah. Why, why do you think people love it so much? Uh, I think it broke the mold. You walk in, you have this visceral experience, yeah. you, you feel the space, you feel the excitement around you. Mm -hmm. um, it's not, you know, from the 1960s, a corporate square box. You, you really get taken by the movement of everything he, he's tried to design in the building. There's not one straight line or square corner of that building. What I like about it also, what I noticed when I was there, was that they are these different, uh, would you call it shells, uh, that are sort of glued together in a sense, but then they left this light uh, in between, so you, you get the daylight into the, the terminal. I thought that was an incredible detail. Uh, and very interesting story. The, the building's really a structural tour de force. Mm -hmm. uh, he worked very closely with uh, Abitur and other engineers from uh, uh, Ammon & Whitney, yeah. uh, a structural engineering firm. The very early models were a single turtle shell, yeah. if you will. Um, and there's an ongoing debate between the structural engineer and the architect of whether you could do one large piece of concrete like this without uh, expansion joints or control joints. Oh. And remember, this is the time when uh, people like Pierre uh, Nervi and others were doing uh, great experimental work in thin shell construction, hyperbolic uh, parabolas and, and, and the sort. And it was all cutting edge. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the day, the structural engineer won out. There are four slots. So the structural design is really four very thin lobes. The entire shell of the building, these four, you know, an acre and a half of concrete, uh, supported by only four columns. Wow. I mean, each column is the size of a house, but yeah. uh, nonetheless, uh, the concrete is as thin as eight inches in some places and no thicker than 18 at the thickest uh, cross-section. I use the analogy of a bird, yeah. uh, where you have a perfectly balanced body yeah. half the weight fore, half the weight aft, on two spindly little legs. Yeah. Uh, these four columns uh, support the entire structure. The slits, if you will, are now these skylights that uh, provide uh, a great mitigation of light to cut down on the contrast between the interior and the exterior. Yeah. So is it right to say that it reminds you of the Kresge Auditorium? Did the Kresge Auditorium come before TWA? Yeah, that was before. The structures are all a little bit different. The TWA structure is probably the purest of all of these, yeah. meaning the uh, post and shell, if you will. Yeah. Uh, Kresge and Ingalls Hockey Rink uh, were also a very similar form, but a different structural system. I see. I saw a quote in, when I did the research uh, that I really liked. It says, in a time excited about travel, place, and movement, and transition. The exterior design is exaggerated and overstated and repeated in every part of the interior. What can we say about the interior of the building? The use of uh, this plastic material, uh, concrete, yeah. that can be formed in very thin layers in uh, almost any form um, imaginable, uh, really defines the exterior of the building. The form of the interior follows the same. Lots of swooping curves and uh, again, no square corners. And that can only be finished in either plaster, which you see in, in some cases, or more typically this ubiquitous uh, one half inch ceramic tile. 
Yeah. And uh, you can only take a small unit like that. It's a small Italian mosaic. Yeah. But the floors transition into walls, which transition into soffits and fascias. And it's a material that uh, lends itself to these very uh, beautiful uh, sculptural forms. Yeah. So, so those are the two alternatives that you have, plaster or mosaic. That's correct. To create. Let's try to describe the interior more. So you have this sunken lounge, like a James Bond uh, movie from this. <laughs> right here. Right. How would you describe the interior of the building? Uh, two ways. <laughs> First of all, uh, for everything we've said about Saarinen being such an ex expressionist, yeah. he was also a modernist and a rationalist. In the planning of this building, he and his colleagues would take stopwatches and they would determine the quickest way to get from the front door to check in, to baggage drop off, to the gate, to your seat. Yeah. And uh, the building really is a, a flowchart. Uh, if you think about the types of terminals that were uh, in existence in the 1950s, yeah. uh, the circulation flow through this is much more fluid. Yeah. Um, again, it's a, a metaphor for the building perhaps, but it's also very rational in terms of getting from point uh, A to Z, getting yeah. to the seat. So it's an incredible combination of both uh, aesthetic beauty and rationality in a sense, and that's the beauty of the whole equation then. Uh, yeah, he's problem solving like any good architect, yeah. and he's doing that in a uh, uh, creative form. Making you know the sunken lounge, uh, which is one of the real character defining features, uh, is positioned in a uh, location where you saw all the glory of flight in yeah. the early 1960s. Yeah, a huge plate glass window looking out to the runways, and uh, you would sit there and have your 1960s uh, triple olive martini yeah. <laughs> and uh, then be able to <laughs> endure your uh, bumpy, uh, uncomfortable flight to, uh, to Rio. You told a very interesting story about the mosaic when you were renovating the building, that you were actually buying it from a Chinese factory. Yes, we uh, spent about a year sourcing this tile. We ended up at the end of the day buying about 20 million pieces. Uh, this is for areas where we're putting new tile in, um, but more importantly, when you're placing two or three missing tile with a very large field, it has to match exactly. Uh, tile was originally fabricated in about 1960 in Italy. The new tile came from China. Uh, we waited for the delivery. It was months late. Uh, one Sunday morning, I'm having my coffee reading the New York Times. <laughs> And I see a little article on that page 10 of the paper saying, Chinese industrial zone shut down uh, poison milk, uh, you know, dozens of school, school children poisoned. <laughs> it turns out, of course, that our factory was in that industrial zone. The Chinese owners of the factory dismantled it and relocated it. We're up and running in about three months. That's incredible. Yeah, we were the first order out of the factory. The 20 million pieces ended up taking just a few days in fabrication, yeah. and we we're on our way. That's incredible when you when you you don't think about that if you're if you're not an architect, of course. When you go into a building that is renovated like this, and you you, you understand that okay, so you have to replace the the tiles, the mosaic is to match exactly. But not only that, they also have to match in terms of slip and water absorption and, and all of those things. Yeah, there are about uh, f five or six ASTM standards for acid resistance, water absorption, slip resistance, ADA, uh, which were none in existence when it was first made. A, a funny story, uh, the building was shut down in 2002. Yeah. Uh, Catch Me If You Can was yeah. filmed there. They did a lot of the early dismantling for us. They took out all the uh, 
later era of metal detectors and change booths and the like. Uh-huh. And the set designers did a terrific job doing tile repair. Yeah. Uh, they had new, no new tile to repair it, but they ended up putting little rubber erasers where some you know, uh, scenic designer would take his uh, rapidograph and, and put the stipple on, or we found little <laughs> paper stickers. So we went through and did our uh, extensive um, conditions assessment. We kept pulling out rubber and paper tiles, <laughs> which were almost imperceptible. <laughs> That's incredible. So we've been outside the building and a little bit inside the building, and maybe we should look into the history of the building. New York Airport Authority had determined in the late 1930s that LaGuardia Airport, which actually opened in 1939, uh, would be insufficient or not large enough. Yeah. And they started planning through the, uh, the World War II years. Uh, Delano Aldridge, who did the uh, uh, marvelous job at LaGuardia Airport, uh, the Marine Air Terminal, against one of the great buildings in New York City, did a series of designs for what was known as Idlewild on the mm-hmm. site of Idlewild Golf Course. One was a very large figure eight terminal, one was a horseshoe. These are mammoths of the scale of Tempelhof in Berlin yeah. and totally unaffordable. So the uh, New York uh, Airport uh, Authority came up with the idea of Terminal City which uh, is where they would build the infrastructure, the runways, taxiways, but uh, give a site to each of the airlines, and the airlines would uh, design, build, operate, and more importantly, pay for each of their terminals. So TWA got uh, uh, arguably the most important site. Um, They're twin terminals. You have the International Terminal by uh, SOM, and you had Pan Am on the right-hand side, Mm -hmm. and then TWA on the left-hand side. The TWA site was right on axis with the entry road. So as you approached and came into the airport, you saw this marvelous bird at the end of the axis. And again, this is before the spaghetti of roads and uh, parking garages filled up the infield. There's reflecting pools and a couple chapels. It was a beautiful overall master plan. Okay. Is it true though that when they inaugurated the building in 62, it was almost obsolete in terms of handling the more modern aircrafts uh, at the time. The TDRA Flight Center was designed for about a 100-person passenger plane. Therefore, uh, waiting lounges had about 100 seats. The uh, uh, baggage capacity was uh, much uh, smaller than it it needed to be. Um, There's a myth that it was only designed for prop planes. That's Mm -hmm. not true. you know, the uh, Lockheed Constellation, which was the mainstay of their fleet, uh, held up to about 110 passengers. But during the late 50s and early 60s, uh, United States Airlines and the U.S. government were very heavily invested in the development of a, a supersonic transport. Uh, Congress killed the bill for funding in a, about 1965. Uh, the Concorde, uh, the British-French uh, plane, did in fact come into existence. But um, that would have also been a passenger load of about the same size. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, Boeing, actually for Pan Am, was pushed to do a wide body and came up with the, uh, the 747, came into service in 1968. TWA uh, brought 747s into their fleet for the first time in 1970. Yeah. At that point, you could say this terminal was obsolete mm-hmm. uh, because it was just so undersized for the passenger loads of four, five, even 600 people in the uh, uh, 747 SPs. 
So the terminal was then in, in, in operation until 2001, is that correct? That's correct. And then when did you enter the stage? We actually entered in 1995. Okay. Uh, Blinder Bell does a lot of different types of work, but we're probably best known for very large, significant historic preservation projects. Yeah. Uh, in late 94, uh, New York City Landmarks uh, designated this a, a landmark structure. Um, we were called in by the Port Authority to find out what that really meant. It's on a very, very valuable side of the airport. I'll give you an analogy of a corner uh, house site in a neighborhood. You have double the amount of sidewalks in a corner site than you do in a mid-block site. This is a pie-shaped site which has the double sidewalks, meaning double the amount of gates because it's pie-shaped. Yeah. Uh, same amount of frontage, but uh, the ability to put lots of uh, gates on the air side. Uh, Port Authority wanted to tear down the building and put a new mega terminal on the site. Wow. Um, so when I was called in, the first question was, can we still do that? Uh, they very quickly understood the, uh, the significance of the building mm -hmm. and looked at a plan to build a new JetBlue terminal behind it. So we got involved with a lot of that early planning and uh, we became the historic preservation consultant to the uh, Port Authority. Uh, the construction of JetBlue effectively saved TWA mm -hmm. because once you cut off TWA to the airfield, uh, it was no longer susceptible to uh, being demolished for a new terminal. That's interesting. What are the, the major criteria for, some, for, for them to say, okay, uh, this is a landmark, or no, this is not a landmark? In New York City, uh, a building needs to be 30 years old before it can be designated. It can be nominated either by an owner or against the wishes of an owner. Okay. Okay? <laughs> Which is very common. Um, uh, and why would they, why would they do that? <laughs> well, Port Authority takes the position that they have a superior jurisdiction, therefore uh, Landmarks does not uh, have any jurisdiction over this building. However, most airport, probably all airport, in fact has federal and state money mm -hmm. involved. The building was uh, listed on the National Register of Historic Places uh, a, a few years later through a very rigorous uh, federal review because of that. This building is so significant, it was listed uh, after about 40 years of existence, when 50 years is the threshold, unless the building is of extraordinary quality. So your first involvement had to do with basically saving the building? Uh, yes, and it, it's a little bit more complicated. Uh, I think the fact that the building was going to be saved uh, was concluded very quickly. Yeah. What's next beyond that? One, uh, the building was still in existence uh, and operated for a another six years before TWA went into their final uh, bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. The air train was being built at the same time. Uh, we very strongly argued against putting an air train stop right in front of the building, mm -hmm. which would have uh, destroyed the what we call the historic scene. Yeah. So now it's off to the side. Yeah, it's a good um, idea. Right, thank you. Mm -hmm. um, additionally, once TWA went bankrupt, uh, we worked on a stabilization plan to keep it secure and weather tight, and uh, because uh, TWA basically walked away in uh, 2001. Mm. Once the building was finally vacated in early 2002, yeah. after the aviation uh, uh, traffic really dropped after 9-11, the Port Authority went out with a uh, RFP in 2005. Yeah. Uh, they got about 70 responses. Uh, 68, I understand, were from architects who had no money. Mm -hmm. And two were from developers who both came back and said, the investment to restore this building is so great 
it would leave no money in the pro forma to actually develop as a hotel. And if you could restore the building, therefore we would go ahead and we'd be interested. Mm -hmm. So uh, about 2007, uh, we started a, a restoration plan, what I call the phase one restoration, which did a lot of work repairing the concrete of the wings. We uh, did the full restoration of the major upper and lower lobbies. Uh, did a lot of uh, life safety work and uh, replaced some of the windows. Uh, we set the stage for the major work that was just completed. A, another RFP went out. Andre Balaz from the Standard Hotel ended up uh, winning the uh, uh, right to develop this. Uh, they were never able to make their pro forma work, mm -hmm. and they uh, walked away from the, the program. Yeah. Uh, Tyler Morris from uh, MCR Morris Development mm -hmm. um, got involved with the port in about 2014, looking at the possibility of becoming the designated developer, and he was uh, identified uh, to do the work in 2015. I heard when you, when you did the presentation at the um, uh, the open house event at the TWA that there was there's a lot of stakeholders when you're working uh, on a project like this. It's very complicated. I think uh, you said something about interacting with 22 government agencies and 14 preservation organizations. Bird surveys, birds and planes do not go well together. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. one of my notes here. Uh, so. How do you navigate it when there's so many people involved? How do you get things done? You do a lot of traffic control. <laughs> <laughs> One of uh, Bayer Linderbell's main roles on this was to help manage the entire process. There is a regulatory approval process uh, working through uh, the New York State uh, Historic Preservation Office, okay. uh, getting both the plan approved and uh, there's a historic tax credit as well, uh, working through that. We solicit the support of many of the uh, uh, advocacy groups, uh, Municipal Art Society, New York Landmarks Conservancy, uh, and, and others, Dokomomo, uh, firms like that, that uh, would help support and give testimony at public hearings. Uh, we had to work through Port Authority and their whole approval process because we're in a marsh, basically. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, waterfront uh, regulations and uh, FAA's very uh, involved uh, for any type of construction. So you have to have a good chart and keep checking off the approvals as they occur. Mm -hmm. uh, not so much creative architectural work on your part, then it's more like herding cats here. Is, is, is that a fair assessment? Oh, it's a, a little bit of all of that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so let's let's talk about what it looks like today. So we have the terminal in the middle and then we have two hotel wings, basically. And uh, someone said that these are the rooms that's going to pay for this. Yeah, they're really three components to the function. The hotel lobby in the flight center, which is reception and a, a junior ballroom and all the food and beverage, uh, restaurants, lounges and the like. Uh, then there are two hotel buildings, each of seven stories, which are on the back side of the terminal. So if you stand in the front of the terminal, uh, they really provide this neutral background uh, to the uh, signature flight center. Yeah. And then the fourth component uh, is this underground uh, conference center or event space, yeah. uh, 46,000 square feet, 45 meeting rooms, including the uh, the main 7,000 square foot ballroom. In a way, the, uh, the hotel rooms, and they're 512, are the bread and butter, but what really, what really drives this is the event space. I see. Um, you have to consider this hotel to be a, a hotel that happens to be an airport mm. rather than an airport hotel. Uh, entire event space or conference center is below grade. Yeah. It's uh, 30 feet below the tarmac. The water level 
uh, be, again, because this is Jamaica Bay, it's in the marsh. Uh, the water level's at eight feet, so it's essentially a very large, uh, very deep bathtub. That created lots of challenges. The large conference center is a just a large open volume, if yeah. you will. Yeah. And it would tend to float rather than sink. Uh, so we have a whole series of uh, specially designed piles that hold it down, which is just the opposite of what a pile foundation would generally do on other, uh, other buildings, which uh, keep it from... Uh, uh, from sinking, uh, we needed to keep this from floating. That's incredible. Right, so uh, they're tuned. Uh, as we loaded the building, we tightened those up. And wow. uh, very sophisticated structural system uh, just for that. Uh, Arup, uh, the big international structural firm, uh, was the designer for that. And I love, I was in that conference center, and I love the, 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 the lighting. There's some, how would I describe, lighting strips in the in the ceiling that will then remind you of the tarmac up above, like it is daylight coming through. Now, is that a Saarinen uh, signature thing? Because I saw in the Miller house, I noticed in the documentary I saw, NPR, uh, the Mac and uh, Masters, mm -hmm. he had the same kind of lighting strips in the ceiling. Uh, these are the, the clear story panels, which yeah. appear to be windows. Uh, uh, Saarinen plus... Uh, Oh, many modern architects uh, would use that type of uh, ribbon or strip window. You did a lot of research um, about Sarnen over this period of time, but also specifically for this renovation. People really wanted it to be in the tradition of him. What could you say about the research that you did about Sarnen? What, what, what struck you when you were working through those, those files? And, and well, the, the Yale University has the, the Sarnen archive, and uh, they're very complete. Um, uh, we start every project understanding the building to the greatest, and the, the design and the design intent to the greatest extent possible. It doesn't mean that we absolutely replicate everything, but we certainly have to have a base of knowledge to either uh, use as a point of departure or a, a point of restoration. Uh, we establish a period of significance, which is the period from 62 to 1970, mm. which is when the building essentially became obsolete. Yeah. And when also the last of the Saarinen uh, design elements were completed. The archives provided uh, the original drawings, mm. uh, original shop drawings, which is actually how the building was uh, finally built. And uh, what was really valuable, a series of uh, uh, sample boards which had been tucked away for decades uh, with red carpet and uh, Florence Knoll designed fabrics, which had not seen the light of day for many, many decades. Uh, the colors were actually quite accurate. Uh, we went back to the Knoll Corporation, uh -huh. uh, Knoll Company, and they were able to replicate a lot of their custom fabrics, uh, which were used in the Ambassador Club, the uh -huh. TWA First Class Lounge. That's incredible. When you, when you look at this, uh, I mean, uh, you have the the design, the interior, the red interior. Uh, they told me that the, even the waste paper basket has a red interior, like the TWA red color inside them. You have you have logos on the bath mats. You have furniture, of course, the wound chair, the tulip chair, and um, also the chandeliers. You mentioned that the conference center were inspired by Sarnen as well. Is that uh, fair? Fair, yeah, the forms of the chandeliers, and Cooley Minato was the lighting designer who did a great job. Yeah. Uh, the forms of the chandelier shells were very similar to the tulip table. So actually my favorite TWA red uh, detail, if you open the little drawer in the hotel room, you open up the safe, 
uh, you have a red velvet TWA logo in the bottom of the safe. <laughs> no detail is overlooked. Just for good measure, that's wonderful. And also, I, I saw that when I was there, the, the TWA air hostess had their uniforms mm -hmm. uh, in, uh, from that period of time. And I also learned that Valentino, Ralph Lauren, and Stan Herman actually designed some of the uniforms. Stan Herman, yeah. remarkable fellow, uh, worked, I believe, in the 1970s or 80s for TWA. He's still working. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, uh, designed all of the new contemporary uniforms that staff work, uh, work with now. Very interesting. And then just to finish off the walkthrough of, of the, the new setting here, we have Connie on the tarmac. What can you tell me about Connie? Oh, Connie, that's a whole nother project onto itself. <laughs> <coughs> uh, Connie, that's a, uh, it's a 1958 Lockheed Constellation uh, four-engine prop plane, a 6049 uh, to be precise, about uh, uh, 85 passengers. Uh, it was found basically in the jungles of uh, Guatemala, which has now been converted into a, a very unique cocktail lounge sitting on the tarmac right outside the flight center. Uh, it was one of two purchased by Lufthansa Airlines and brought to the Auburn, Maine airport and uh, Lufthansa uh, had the idea of getting one of those airborne. Uh, they use a second to cannibalize to get a lot of the avionics out of that and also use it for uh, uh, models for some of the parts they had to uh, recreate. Tyler Morris uh, bought the cannibalized one, which will never fly again, but uh, had it restored and uh, shipped it down from Maine to the site. Uh, it's a beautiful, new restoration and a very unique place to sit down and you know, have your 1960s cocktail. And it was transported from Maine to New York and uh, over the Washington Bridge they had a little bit of a problem because it was too heavy. Turning radius of a plane that's uh, about 200 feet long is a little bit tough, um, although it's quite a show. It was followed by the news organizations from Maine all the way down 95. Uh, yeah. The flatbed had a flat tire or two, so that made the news. I ended up in Times Square for a weekend and uh, Mayor de Blasio and Tyler Morris and lots of luminaries uh, uh, had a big festival of the Connie Times Square weekend yeah. and then was shipped back out to Kennedy uh, where the wings were put on. It was uh, finally reassembled. And we had a uh, architectural project of providing all the new contemporary life safety and lighting, like electrical and a, a new bar uh, to go into that. So we worked with uh, an interior designer, Stonehill Taylor, who actually did the hotel rooms as well. Yeah. Uh, we had great fun. Now, it's very funny with that, that Connie, when they took the Connie through, they, they told me that they had four turns planned <laughs> through mm -hmm. Manhattan. Right. <laughs> you know, you really have to do this. <coughs> and also, uh, when pilots come and see Connie, and they look in the cockpit and they start to cry, I mean, there's, there's something about these people at the TWA, or maybe it's just in, in aviation in general, that people have this emotional connection to. Oh, I, th I think there are a lot of aviation geeks. I yeah. consider myself one. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's a special treat to be able to sit in that cockpit and get your photograph taken. Yeah. We have, there, there are a couple of really special suites, uh, which I call the Geek Suites, yeah. which are uh, in the South Hotel building, top floor. And uh, they look out on the alley between the International Terminal and the JetBlue Terminal, where the very large A380s, the, uh, the wide bodies, come in. And you're almost eye to eye at that height yeah. uh, with the pilot in the plane. And uh, people will go to the uh, rooftop pool, which is in that same general area, yeah. and uh, stay there for hours. 
with binoculars just watching the planes take yeah. off. The hotel rooms are very, very nice. I mean, it's, it's really, you feel, you feel they've done a great job in terms of relate to that time period. And, and uh, it's sort of a reinterpretation of it. It's like a slight reinterpretation of it, but, but it's, it's very much there. I think in terms of, of the design. Key players are really four architectural and uh, interior design firms. Uh, in addition to Bayer Blinder Bell, um, Marie Lebrano from uh, LCA uh, worked with the developer before BBB got involved as yeah. we were working for the Port Authority at the time and helped work out some of the initial concepts and they were the uh, hotel design architect. Uh, Inc. Uh, interior design, did the interior design work for the uh, uh, conference center. And then Stonehill Teller was the interior designer for the hotel rooms. Yeah. And also I uh, want to uh, mention uh, uh, Signe Nielsen from Matthews Nielsen Landscape Architects who did a lot of the exterior landscape work around the building. Yeah. And um, I've understood that uh, um, this has been a, a bonding experience for you because it was very intense. Uh, people told me about these weekly meetings where you really had to get your <clears throat> in order because uh -huh. uh, Tyler Morse was a very demand is a very demanding person. He knows what he wants. Yeah, Tyler's very demanding. He's very visionary. He was really the driving force. Yeah. I would uh, in some ways call him the creative director. He really <laughs> pushed this project. And uh, to his credit, he was the third of a series of developers to try to make this happen. And yeah. he pulled it off. Yeah. And to that, Caduce to him and the entire team. And, and what I find so impressive is that he had a very strong idea of what he wanted to create. I mean, that thing with Connie, putting Connie there, I mean, that just tells you a little bit about how he thinks about this building, you know. Absolutely. That is incredible. Yep. There is a museum uh, at this uh, conference center. The people who worked for TWA are sending in memorabilia. Uh, you, you get like one box of memorabilia every week from these people who are collecting <laughs> things. It, it's incredible. Uh, how And I also uh, learned about this, um, was it the Silver Wings, like the, the, the people who worked there for a very long time? There was a woman there who had TWA tattooed on her on her, mm -hmm. on her side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was one of the more successful uh, conferences. Uh, uh, took place about a month ago. 1,200 uh, retired flight attendants in a very close-knit uh, group came in, took the place over, and just had a ball for the weekend. <laughs> And the TWA tattoo was actually right. upside down, so she could look at it, but no, no, everybody else had to turn their heads. <laughs> Another thing that I found so interesting is this electromechanically Solari split flap display in the terminal that we've all used to love, you know, when they change uh, the destination and the flights and the time. You had to go back and, and recreate those. Uh, you had to renovate that whole thing. It's, it's actually made in uh, Udine in, in, in Italy, right, 58 years ago. Uh, that's correct. It's still a, a very active company. The boards were taken out oh, probably about 25 or 30 years ago, and mm -hmm. uh, LCD technology replaced them. And it just never had the, the, the same impression that the uh, original uh, split flap boards had. Uh, there's a little factory in a little town north of Venice, in Udine, as you said. And uh, uh, they're making these boards the way they always did. You saw rows of uh, elderly women sitting at what looked like old uh, sewing machines putting together these electronic plastic Rolodexes. It's incredible. Each symbol or each slot had uh, between 80 and 120 small panels. Great fun putting together the message because um, uh, if you look closely at the airlines, that first of all, it's not a real, it, it's not real information. Yeah. You know, they are either fictional or uh, um, 
defunct airlines. I see. You know, Continental's up there, and Pan Am's up there, <laughs> BOAC, and uh, all the great airlines of the uh, mid and late, uh, late 1900s. Let's talk a little bit about the Sarnen. He made the design of the terminal and presented it to uh, the, the people, and they accepted it. But then he got second thoughts, and he worked on it for another year. Why did he do that? Sarnen was a perfectionist, and he uh, knew that this was an important commission. Yeah. And uh, he ended up... Uh, coming up with new ideas about a year after he had started. Uh, he had a very indulgent client, it was Howard Hughes, yeah. uh, who was a majority uh, shareholder of TWA at the time. And he had Hughes's ear, and he said, listen, I have a better idea, and, and they lost a year in development. Yeah. And uh, it was one of the last terminals at uh, Kennedy to open up. Yeah. Um, but uh, the project was much more expensive than it, it was budgeted, but uh, it was a very uh, deep-pocketed client that wanted the best terminal at Kennedy. Yeah. Louise Huxtable, the New York Times uh, critic, uh, when the plans first came out, said something to the effect that the building is the most dubious idea, but at the end, uh, its execution was the finest of all the terminals at Terminal City. Wow. That's a good compliment. How was Sarnen? He, he had a very collaborative approach of working. He built, I saw in this documentary, he built huge models of the, so he can crawl into them and, 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 and experience the space and the scale and stuff like that. Um, was that typical of architects at the time or was this sort of in an innovative pr approach? Very innovative. Um, the successor firm, uh, Roach Tinkaloo, uh, followed through with that um, three-dimensional approach and it was very important. Uh, for the three-dimensionality or the modeling of uh, the types of spaces he was developing. Most architects of the time would do very elaborate presentation models. Saarinen did that for the design process, mm. uh, which was uh, a little bit different. You know, we have a great photograph of a very large-scale half-model of this building with someone, we'd like to think it's Saarinen, with just the <laughs> legs and shoes sticking out and the whole bodies <laughs> within the lower lobby. Yeah. And unfortunately, he died uh, fairly young. I mean, in, in the middle of his, uh, he was what, 50, uh, 51 years old, right? Yeah, that's right, 51 years old. He was uh, had very severe headaches, was diagnosed uh, very quickly with uh, a brain tumor. He went in for surgery, died on the operating table within a month of getting the diagnosis. He opened his own firm in 1950 when his father, a very uh, noted Elio Sarnin, passed away. So he was only really in practice for uh, 11 years. Yeah. Um, probably the most uh, notable American architect of the time, made the cover of Time magazine. This building was uh, got a huge amount of positive press all the way through its development, yeah. so it was very anticipated. Yeah, yeah. You you you, th you can think about what what could have happened if he had another good thirty years as an architect. Yeah. Really just amazing. And what I found remarkable is not only the body of work that he produced in the eleven years of his practice, but um, the diversity of expression 
you know, the types of designs he came up with. But that was also a, a source of criticism of him, wasn't it? That they thought that he was not academically uh, really a heavyweight or that he didn't really have a style of his own, that he was going back and forth. And uh, But his, his counter-argument was that everything, every building is, is its own unique uh, gestalt in a sense. So what was behind that criticism? Is just uh, envy? No, I think it was a, a very orthodox modernist thought that buildings had to be very rationalized, very orthogonal, and had to follow a set grid. This really broke the uh, broke that mold. The revisionist view of uh, Serenade is much more generous and has started to has, has really appreciated his genius. Yeah, Erosarn, and he grew up uh, and he worked a lot with his father, Elio. Uh, is that correct? Uh, that's correct. Elio came over to uh, work on the Chicago Tribune competition. Uh, he did not win that, but uh, about a year later he was uh, he got the commission to design and run the Cranbrook uh, uh, Academy mm-hmm. uh, outside of Detroit. And uh, uh, Arrow was a, a young child at the time and really worked at his father's knees doing uh, a lot of design work. So he grew up in the industry. A breakthrough moment for Arrow was the highly contested uh, Jefferson expansion memorial competition for the National Park Service. Uh, And both father and son went after that. A uh, telegram came in for E. Saarinen congratulating the architect on winning the competition. Elio managed to uh, assume that he had won it and uh, celebrated for three days uh, (laughs) when a telephone call came in and found out it was actually for Arrow. So, uh, they celebrated for another three days. <laughs> and the father and shot himself <laughs> in the backyard. <laughs> and, and this really put Arrow on the, on, uh, on the map. It, 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 you know, it, and this is the project we all know is the St. Louis Arch. Yeah, that's, that's an incredible story, my goodness. You have to be careful with that. Uh, you know, the, what's, on, what's on the envelope. So Richard, uh, you spent, you're a partner at, at, at this company. You spent many years working as an architect. When did you know that you wanted to become an architect? I, I think from a very early age. I was always drawing. I was doing uh, building models of built form, you know, uh, ships and planes and small structures. Um, I was actually, I did a lot of artwork when mm-hmm. I was young as well, um, a lot of painting, but uh, mostly uh, uh, sculpture. Mm-hmm. So I did an undergraduate uh, as a uh, art major, doing a lot of uh, uh, sculpture work. Yeah. Uh, the uh, Archipenko or the really expressive types of work. Uh, um, so you could have been an artist. I, I hope to think I still am. Yeah, well, you are. I mean, <laughs> in a way. Yeah. Right. So you know, but at the same time, uh, as I was doing a lot of artwork, there are a number of uh, important buildings, uh, the historic buildings, being saved and being adapted, and yeah. that's always that was always very appealing to me. In the uh, mid '70s, uh, which was really a period when a lot of modernist uh, architecture was being rejected, and uh, Jane Jacobs was writing about cities, oh. and Penn Station had already been lost, uh, mm-hmm. but there's a big movement to save uh, urban structures yeah. and historic buildings. Uh, that became very appealing to me. Uh, I went on, uh, got an architectural degree, and ended up coming to Byron Bell very early in my career. I've been here for 35 years, and I've been. Uh, Fortunate enough to work on a number of very uh, significant historic structures around the world. What what would be your top three projects? Uh, certainly, TWA is yeah. in there for uh, <laughs> my 25-year <25 year laughs> um, 
that's association with the building. Yeah. Um, there's another airport building, which mm-hmm. most people don't know about, but uh, uh, historically, probably one of the most seminal uh, terminals uh, ever built in the country. This is at Newark Airport, built in 1935, the first really modern airline terminal in the country where planes would come to the uh, uh, come to the building. Yeah. Uh, this was a building threatened uh, in the late 90s. We ended up moving it half a mile down one of the taxiways, and it is now the administrative center and operations center for Newark Airport. It's mm-hmm. now known as Building One. It's where uh, Mary Earhart used to fly out, uh, Wiley Post flew out. Yeah. It's the location of first night landings and paved runways, mm-hmm. the first weather station, the first hotel at an airport. Incredibly important building. Uh, that, that certainly is in the top 10. We from Sweden, we know it very well because we fly into Newark and then we spend uh, hours in the passport control. Right. And there you have images of that building yes. in, in the terminal. Mm-hmm. So, so okay, so that's, that's, that's two. And, 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 and then the, third, the third. <laughs> third, I'm going to give you a pair. <laughs> this is tough. It's like, uh, who's your favorite child? Uh, uh, I've also been fortunate to work on Ellis Island uh, for about three years. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, we're the architects of a master plan, the main uh, immigration building, and a, a number of buildings both on the North Island and now, more importantly, on the South undeveloped portion of the building. From Ellis Island, we were able to work on an immigration museum in Antwerp. Yeah. It was about the last of the emigration stations that was not destroyed during World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is called the Red Star, Star Line Building, yeah. and it was built around the turn of the century. Interestingly, because uh, if you emigrated to the United States, you were rejected at the Ellis Island Inspection Station, the shipping company would have to pay to ship you back at their expense. So J.P. Morgan and others who were uh, investors in this company decided to build an Ellis Island inspection station on the uh, waterfront in Antwerp mm-hmm. using blueprints you know, from Ellis. It was adapted. We ended up doing a restoration of these three nautical buildings on the waterfront to yeah. a large symbolic tower, mm. which is in dialogue to the Statue of Liberty. Mm. That's a long story. Incredible. And uh, did the interpretive display within yeah. that. So uh, a project that uh, took about 10 years of my life and uh, so wonderful. You mentioned in an interview that the work has become more complex and challenging with historic buildings serving the settings for adaptive reuse and contemporary interpretations. In my mind, it's more important to find an ongoing viable use for a building, uh, which both celebrates its, uh, its legacy but also so provides a contemporary use to make it uh, relevant. Throughout my entire career, we've always thrived to find the revitalization key to these uh, important historic buildings. I see. We have, in all of our practice, I think only done one true restoration, which was uh, restoring a building back to its original use. Mm-hmm. They almost all have some new use to make them viable. So when you come into these projects that has this preservation component into it and reuse uh, uh, ambition, are you confronted with the same type of problems every time or is every building unique in terms of its problems or challenges for you as an architect? Uh, The approach is almost always the same. Yeah. Uh, The uh, result is almost always unique and different. Yeah. 
Uh, we'll start by doing a preservation mapping mm -hmm. to identify the uh, architectural and historic significance of each part of the building. Yeah. And uh, we have what we call the three R's. Uh, the most significant is our restoration zone mm -hmm. and that we try to be fairly true to the original design intent. The second level of significance, a little less significant, uh, would be the rehabilitation zone where we uh, uh, allow ourselves a little bit more leeway to adapt to new function or new technology. And the third would be the third arc would be the reinvention zone, mm -hmm. which are uh, the least significant spaces that can be either uh, removed or redesigned to help support the uh, the restoration, the rehabilitation areas. Uh, I think uh, one question that um, our listeners probably would would, would uh, like to ask you is then, what are the architects that you admire? I, I think one of the architects who's had the most influence uh, is Alvar Alto. Uh -huh. another Scandinavian, who had a very modern palette, but a very creative application of that modern palette. If you look at uh, his materials, limited amount of woods and metals and lots of glass and yeah. a free flow of space, you can see those characteristics in great architecture everywhere around the, uh, around the world. Yeah. He's had great influence. Yeah. Uh, the New York Five, from a very modernist uh, standpoint, yeah. this is uh, Graves and Meyer, Quathme, uh, Haydick, and uh, the Fifth. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, very rigorous in terms of um, uh, design application and setting a premise and uh, designing to that. Yeah. I was fortunate to uh, know Charlie Guathme while he was alive, yeah. and uh, actually he was one of. Uh, my instructors, and um, if I learned nothing else in school, it was to be consistent in setting a design party and then testing that all the way through a project. Thank you so much, Richard, uh, for, for taking the time for this. I mean, I, I, congratulations again for, for doing an excellent job. The, the, the building is, is fantastic. I'd like, like to invite all, all our listeners around the world to come to JFK and, and visit the TWA Hotel. Uh, you'll be transported back in time but still have a very contemporary experience of just the glamorous world of traveling, the way it used to be, and not so much anymore, perhaps. <laughs> this is Art Insiders New York, and my name is Anders Holst. Thank you for listening, and be sure to visit artinsidersnewyork.com to join the conversation and subscribe to the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode of the Art Insiders New York podcast, head over to iTunes, if you're not already there, to subscribe, rate and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. This episode was produced by UOM LLC, copyright 2020.